Hi everyone. Today's a bittersweet moment as Cloud Asia comes to an end. For our penultimate episode, I am here with Louise Tran, a strong advocate for Asian Australian leadership and a leading profile in the food and sustainability sector. Louise is the child of refugee parents who fled Vietnam in the 1970s. Although growing up with privilege and opportunity, it was her parents' story that shaped how Louise viewed her purpose and ultimately how she saw she could make an impact not only in Australia but in Vietnam. Welcome to Clout Asia, where we ask guests to take us on their journey to Asia capability to help us understand what being an Aussie with clout is all about. I'm Lucy Du, and here is Louise. Welcome, Louise. Thank you so much for being on Clout Asia. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me, Lucy. You are actually my first guest who will be talking a little bit about Vietnam, a country that I visited only once and love and really a very important part of the APAC region as well. I want to start right from the beginning and talk about your upbringing in Australia and your cultural roots. You're second generation Australian, Asian Australian. Your parents came from a very unique journey to Australia. Tell us about that. Thanks, Lucy. My story can't exist without telling the story of my parents' journey to Australia. My mum was 17 when she was forced to flee Vietnam as a refugee, arriving at a refugee camp in Malaysia. And my dad had his own journey as a 19-year-old teenager, really, quite young, both of them, and fleeing Vietnam as well and arriving at a refugee camp in Thailand. They were fortunate to be able to come to Australia under the UNHCR program, landing in a new country without any family support, not knowing the language. I suppose that when we talk about roots, I know that from my parents' story and from their journey, my life wouldn't be what it is today without their resilience and strength. How was it growing up in 90s, 80s Australia as not only the child of migrant parents but refugee parents during that time? Was there anything in particular that is quite memorable to you? Growing up as a child, you only appreciate later on as you get older the sacrifices that your parents make for you. I'm now a mum of two young boys. I hear the stories that when I was born, my mum was working at the time, breastfeeding me on her lunch breaks while dad would drive me around. He was a taxi driver then. I probably didn't appreciate that as a child, but now that I am a mum of two, the sacrifices that mum and dad had to make during those early days when they had to feed their kids, they had to work, there was no choice for them. They had to pay bills, they had to have a roof over their heads and to support my brother and I and to help provide that security. 
And it's a security that they didn't have. It's a security that was taken away from them when they had to leave Vietnam in that way on a fishing boat in the middle of the night, not knowing when they would reach land, when they would reach safety or where their next meal would be coming from. As a young person, as a child growing up in Australia, I probably thought that I lived this life of luxury and safety, but that's thanks to the sacrifices and the resilience of my parents and their journey. Was there anything in particular that made you feel like you were different from your peers, whether it's because your parents Vietnamese or just the way that they had to work extra hard to give you the same opportunities? I feel very fortunate that I grew up in a suburb called Bankstown, and that's in New South Wales here in Sydney. Bankstown is one of the most diverse multicultural communities. And so growing up in this part of the world, this part of Australia where at school I would have other Australian Vietnamese kids that looked like me and ate the types of food that I ate at home alongside Polish friends and Italian friends or friends of Greek background and heritage, as well as Australians who have been born in Australia with Irish and English roots. I'm very grateful and, again, realising that as you get older for that diversity I was exposed to in my community. But, yes, I, I did have instances where I would feel different. I moved schools a few times and the second primary school that I attended, I'd say wasn't as diverse as the first school I had attended. So that's, I think, where I experienced, unfortunately, my first taste of racism, where I would be called different names, derogatory, or the eyes were pointed to in that my eyes were different. And that's, I think, the first real memories I had of sensing that I was different or experiencing racism at a very young age that made me question, am I different? Do I want to be different or do I want to blend in? I don't want to stand out. How do I blend in to this this school, this classroom? That was a learning experience for me very young to make me question the sort of the difference that I felt as an Asian Australian, as a Vietnamese Australian who looked a little bit different to others. What's interesting, and this is not a phenomenon that's unique to second-generation Australian migrant kids, but across the world is language. I hear a lot of stories of second-generation, third-generation children who refuse to speak the second language because it makes them feel like they are more different I remember growing up, that was the case for myself and a lot of friends. Even when you could, you would go to a corner and speak it quietly to your family because you didn't want to be perceived as different. You speak Vietnamese with your family. You've retained the language. What was it about your upbringing that made you retain it, you think? We were lucky in the sense that my grandma on my mum's side, my maternal Bung Wai, she joined us in Australia in the 1980s. Unfortunately, my grandfather didn't make it and he passed away in Vietnam, so my mum never got to see his dad again. But my grandmother arrived in Australia and I think a lot 
of the reason why I was able to retain language is because I had no choice and had to learn to speak and communicate with my grandma. And just through the practice, just through the communication with grandma and with my parents and my aunties, I'm really grateful, again, you appreciate these things as you're older, that I did have to communicate and learn how to communicate as a child and learn how to speak Vietnamese. It's pretty basic, I'll be honest, and it will enable me to have conversations when I travel to Vietnam and do work in Vietnam and connect with Vietnamese people. I am grateful to have kept that that language. But it's funny when you mentioned that trying to hide hide the the language skills. I have a very embarrassing story that my grandma reminds me from time to time. She was speaking to me in Vietnamese after picking me up from school, and I think I threatened her with, don't speak that language referring to Vietnamese. You're embarrassing me. You're embarrassing me, grandma. Please stop speaking that language. We have these memories as kids growing up with a different culture in Australia the need to hide it or to feel embarrassed by it, it's just something that resonates with me. And again, not until you get older and you realise how incredible it is to have that different perspective, to have that tradition, the culture of a completely different world is so rich and makes you feel pretty grateful. And we'll talk a bit more about some of the great work that you're doing in country in Vietnam as well. I want to first jump to your nomination of food, and you have nominated fur, an amazing choice. Tell us a bit more about why you chose this particular dish. I'm someone who doesn't enjoy breakfast in this environment where we just have toast and avocado and spreads. But if I could have a bowl of fur every single morning, I would absolutely have breakfast. <laughs> fur to me symbolizes Vietnam, symbolizes my roots. It is a dish that is not only simple in that it is a beef or chicken base with the noodles, utilizing all of the the different parts of the animal, so to speak, but it's complex in its in the patience that it takes to cook the broth for the spices and the herbs that go with it and just the deep nourishment that you can get from a bowl of fur. When you're feeling unwell, when you just want something nourishing, a bowl of fur will fix everything up. I chose it because of all of those reasons and also that it's it's the way that I can pass on culture to my children. My children who are born in Australia have Irish and English roots from my husband's side of the family and Vietnamese roots from my side of the family, they absolutely love eating fur and it just brings me so much joy to see them finishing a really large bowl of fur in such a tiny body that they have. (laughs) So (laughs) it is really a truly a symbol of Vietnam. Most Australians, if not all, know about fur, but there is definitely good and less good fur. In your opinion, what makes a good fur? Everyone will have their opinion of whether the southern style or the northern style of fur is better. Honestly, a good fur is one that's made, this is going to sound really corny, with that care and attention to the cuts of meat or to the the different bones you might use to make the broth. 
and the care and the tension to the spices and the charring of the ginger and the onion. There's so much detail and attention to bring out some of those flavours. The broth needs to be extremely thought out, but it's simplistic in that sense as well. I feel that simplicity of the ingredients, but the complexity and the richness of the the depth of flavour makes it a perfect bowl. And for me, I absolutely love herbs. So a perfect bowl of fur will have the beautiful herbs added to give it that extra freshness and flavour. Is there a Tran family recipe that has been passed down that you make at home? Yeah, my mum creates a beautiful fur and I think just learning through watching her, I'm not sure with, with yourself, but in Vietnamese culture, recipes aren't really a thing in the sense that, especially for family recipes, you watch, you learn, you observe, and you just do and you feel And it's interesting you say recipe. It's very much passed down just by observation and by watching what my mum does. And so, yes and no, there there is a recipe, but there's not one written down. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure when I pass down the recipe, it will be one where it's an observation as well. That cultural difference is really important, you know. It's the tradition of being in a kitchen, watching your grandmother making something for lunch and the spread that's been prepared. It's observing your mum cooking and including all the ingredients and it's observing the the shopping element as well, going to the, the markets, going to the shops, which ingredients to buy, how to pick the right cut of meat, how to see if something's fresh enough. Like that's all part of the journey of cooking. The way that a lot of Asian culture and communities use this almost storytelling way of passing down recipes also makes you create those connections, right? You have to spend time with someone to understand how they're choosing the ingredients, how they're going to make it. It's a very interactive and engaging process, which is very related to the values of family and community and connectivity. You're very passionate about food, so am I, but I want to jump to what you do on the social impact space, especially with food. You head up Oz Harvest Ventures at the moment. You've had a diverse and long career with Oz Harvest and in the social impact space. Tell us a bit more about what Oz Harvest does and how you got into this sector. Yes, I do love food and it turns out that you can love food and work with food at the same time, which is fantastic. For me, I discovered Harvest in a previous role working for a marketing and media company that also worked in the food space. When I came across Ronnie Khan, who founded Oz Harvest, I was deeply inspired by the mission and the purpose. So Oz Harvest is a charity that was started in 2004 by Ronnie Khan. She's a social entrepreneur and it exists to reduce food from going to waste, going to landfill and re-diverts that food to help support and feed people in need. Simple concept, complex logistics. In concept itself, it just didn't make sense that food was going to waste when we had people around the corner 
not having access to food or nutritious food at that. So Oz Harvest, when it began, it started with one van driving around rescuing food from cafes, hotels, supermarkets. Now it's delivered 250 million meals to people in need, and that's in Australia alone. Wow. We also operate globally as well. And so Oz Harvest was just a calling for me, I think, and I didn't even know it. I had approached Ronnie to ask if she could mentor me as I wanted to be in the space where I could help people. And the rest is is sort of history. I've been there for 11 years now, working in various different roles. Oz Harvest has education programs, engagement programs. We're always innovating. So I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to work in the space where there's impact there's innovation, and it's making a difference, a real difference to people's lives. How are you using your cultural background or your Vietnamese-Australian background in some of the work that you're doing at Oz Harvest? The reason why I was attracted to this purpose-led organisation is the story I shared with you of, of knowing where my parents came from and how they got to Australia and providing that security for myself and my brother. The, the people that we service at Oz Harvest are people who, who are struggling, who, who have the same stories or similar stories or backgrounds that mum and dad have. And it was through the support of the charities that were on the ground at the time when my mum arrived as a 17-year-old and my dad arrived as a 19-year-old that helped transform their lives And so I bring those values with me each day I arrive at the workplace or every day I wake up to do the work that I do. I hold their experiences with me and that sort of drives my purpose within this organisation. In terms of the Vietnamese background, there was a way that I thought I could do something even a bit deeper on a deeper level, which is exploring Could this model work in another country like Vietnam? This model of helping to feed people, utilising what would otherwise be deemed as waste, could that transform or nourish someone in Vietnam? And so I explored that pathway and I was able to last year, sorry, 2022, help to launch the same food rescue model in Vietnam using my Vietnamese networks and contacts and background. You founded Viet Harvest, co-founded with Jimmy Pham. How did you meet him and tell us the process in which you set this up? At the time, Oz Harvest had been doing a bit of work with the United Nations. We were supporting campaigns that helped drive awareness around food waste. There's 30% of all food that's grown and produced in the world going to waste. While we are looking at feeding a growing population. So through the work I was doing with the United Nations at the time, I was able to go to climate change conferences in Peru and host events in Thailand. And the United Nations gave us an opportunity to explore what this model might look like in Vietnam. So it was through that gateway that I and Ronnie had reached out to Jimmy Pham at Koto. 
Jimmy is an inspiration, as is Ronnie. They're, I call them my two rock stars, social enterprise rock stars who I absolutely aspire to and look up to. And Jimmy had set up in Vietnam 20 years ago a social enterprise model called COTO. That stands for No One Teach One, where he's able to transform the lives of young people, street kids or ethnic minority groups and kids who are really, really doing it tough. Jimmy's stories absolutely incredible but it made sense so much sense to connect with him because he was in the hospitality space he was already working with food providers who might have surplus food and we started a conversation in 2017 these things don't happen overnight but in 2017 we connected we did a little trial event a taster event together to see if there would be an appetite to have food rescue happening in Vietnam turns out there was absolutely a a desire and a gap there. There was little being done to rescue surplus food from the big hotel chains, from the supermarkets. And so we turned that conversation and that idea into action. And in 2020, we were able to have the support of lawyers to really set up the social enterprise and register it as a, an official organisation obviously COVID hit. So there was a little delay in helping us get started. But in 2022, we were able to have our first funding partner, Action on Poverty, and we were able to then have resources on the ground to rescue our first kilogram of food in Vietnam. And in that short amount of time have delivered, I think, 28,000 meals in Vietnam since, since starting not so long ago. That's amazing. Congratulations on the great achievements so far. How have you found applying OzHarvest's model in Australia in terms of the delivery and execution of some of the programs today? Is it very similar or quite different because it's a different country, a different culture? <laughs> it's, it's similar but different. <laughs> similar in the sense that we knew what the, the formula was. So where, where would we find the food? The food, if you look at the supply chain, there is food going to waste at a farm level all the way through to the retail level. We started to think about which partners could we access that food with least resistance or the easiest way to help us prove out the model. So it's similar in the sense that we will collect food in a refrigerated vehicle and deliver that food to charities that exist in Vietnam. It's different in that the logistics would be quite different in terms of traffic, timing, routing, and how how to get from a food donor through to the charity. We're very lucky though. We, We have incredible hotel partners, the IHG group who were very open with um, extending their support, which they support in Australia, extending that support to Vietnam and opening those doors to say, yes, we trust the brand. We trust the impact that you've made already to date in Australia. So we're going to extend that support into Vietnam. And we were able to then rescue real food, quality food from the incredible buffets of the the five-star hotels. When you're traveling, All of that food that doesn't get eaten on the hotel buffet would normally be thrown away. But thanks to this sort of solution, there's actually a practical solution to where it can go to. Similar in the sense that we started with the idea of rescuing food from different businesses. It obviously takes a lot of time to educate the businesses. It's taken 
OzHarvest 20 years to talk about waste or talk about food waste being valued. And so in Vietnam, we're just starting that journey. It's a good segue into your movie nomination. You have chosen a documentary called Food Fighter, which really showcases the work of OzHarvest. It was filmed in 2016, capturing the journey of a lot of the the work that we were doing, rescuing food here in Australia, but also documenting the work that Ronnie did to set up OzHarvest in South Africa. And at the time, the work we did with the United Nations to really amplify the awareness that food waste is contributing to climate change. That documentary I chose, not many people know about it or have heard about the documentary, but it's a way to educate and capture what we do in a documentary-like settings. Well, we'll definitely include a link in the show notes. It's available to stream on a few different platforms. You mentioned before about social enterprise There is a distinction between a charity and a social enterprise in the sense that social enterprises, you are creating profits, but it's going towards good. How do you see the role of businesses in making a real impact and working with organisations like OzHarvest and others to create positive change? I think there is a shift that I'm feeling and sensing businesses that only exist to to generate profit might find that consumers might be looking to support businesses that have more of a purpose or more of an understanding on what is happening to the environment or to the communities. The shift in the business community is really apparent right now as businesses set out their environmental, social governance goals What's exciting about the social enterprise sector is that it provides the commercial thinking but the social impact as well. For so long, charities, year on year, it feels like this hamster wheel of fundraising in order to Mm. do the good work that we want to do and to create the impact that we want to create, whether it's homeless services or supporting refugees and asylum seekers or feeding people and feeding programs, these charities exist to do good and they do an incredible job. And OzHarvest is one of those charities that has been on this journey. Having the lens of social enterprise makes us think in a different way and makes us strategically direct the organisation to a different mindset. How might we create a profit for purpose business that can help fund the work that we do but offer a point of difference to businesses that are out there that don't necessarily view business with that lens. I think it's an area that will just continue to grow. We're very fortunate to be Australian and live in Australia. The opportunities that's been given to us and to pay that forward is something that you do on a daily basis. Thinking about your own work and some of the trends in Australia in the social enterprise space, how can businesses or individuals who are Asian Australian or have Asia capability in Australia think about 
leveraging those skill sets to amplify some of that impact that they may have. There's so much opportunity that we have with our incredible talent that we have here in Australia and with Asia being our neighbours in the region. I mean, the work that I'm doing in Vietnam is so exciting because having that diversity of thought is so important and critical in business. The innovation that I've come across just in Vietnam, and that's where I've done more of my work, is phenomenal. In the sustainability space, in the climate space, there are some businesses there that Australia can absolutely learn from. There is innovation happening all the time. And you can imagine Vietnam with a population of you know 90 million people and Australia's population of 24 million people. The exchange and the sharing of knowledge is a huge benefit to us here in Australia. What's sad and disappointing to see in Australia is that while we have one in, I think, one in five people with Asian cultural heritage, There's very, very little diversity in in senior management positions or board positions that are held by Asian Australians. And if we don't tap into that knowledge that we have and the talent and help elevate those leaders, we're missing a huge opportunity, not just for business, but to innovate and to create that social impact. Us as leaders, as Asian Australian leaders, of Vietnamese heritage or Chinese heritage or what have you, if there is a way to elevate leadership, we can just open so many doors and have so many opportunities presented that might not have been presented before. In terms of advice or thoughts on how in the social impact space, individuals, businesses can do more to leverage Asia capability or Asian Australians? I think diversity has to exist in business, whether a large corporation or a small one. Tapping into the knowledge and the cultural experiences or the lived experiences of individuals, particularly of this Asian Australian individuals, can only enrich the decision-making and the opportunities and the viewpoints I'm the chair of the board of directors for Multicultural Leadership Initiative and we exist to empower leaders of culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds in the climate space where we are talking about the future of our planet and the resources that are required to feed our growing population. How will we find the solutions if we don't have diversity of thought and thinking in the decisions that are being made or the policy decisions that are being drafted in government or in companies? So I think diversity is critical and without representation of Asian Australians in business and in decision making, it is really a missed opportunity for the business sector. To end... As we're running out of time, the one person you have nominated as someone you look up to incredibly is your maternal grandma. Tell us why she's your person of clout. My grandma is pretty special and so grateful that she's still with us today. She is 92 and when she shares her stories, her life story with me, every opportunity I am able to ask her, I think of her resilience and her strength and her sheer determination 
to get through all of the suffering and the pain that she might have gone through in life. I hope that I can take a piece and a percentage of her resilience with me through my life and take that on whatever journey that I go through or whatever life deals me. It's been wonderful to have you on our show. Thank you so much for sharing your journey and the great work that Oz Harvest does. If anyone would love to support Oz Harvest or work with both Viet Harvest or some of your other ventures, please reach out. Thank you, Lucy. And thanks for creating this opportunity for us to share our stories. Really appreciate it. This will be the second last episode of Clout Asia. You can still listen to all of our previous episodes on Substack or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for tuning into Clout Asia for the past two years. Clout Asia will return. In the meantime, please drop me a note and tell me what you thought of the episodes. You can find me at hello at clout.asia. See you soon.